Good morning to you who are here and to you who are watching from some other location. We're glad we can, uh, in some sense, be together to worship God together today. I hope you're uh, surviving these, uh, these strange times. It's probably, life is probably a lot different for most of you, although I've decided that uh, self-isolation is really not much different than retirement. <laughs> kind of the same thing, although Sally is getting tired of my insisting that you wear a mask around the house, but you just got to be careful, Sally. You just got to be careful. Maybe it gives you some extra time to do some things you hadn't been able to do before, indulge in some hobbies, maybe. Uh, sometimes people ask me what my hobby is. I remember several years ago uh, on Orchard's website for each of the staff people, they had a little biographical information and they asked us what our hobby was. And I listed my hobby as Renaissance architecture. I don't know why I did that. I just <laughs> felt silly that day, I guess. Actually, if I, were, if I were to say, probably reading would be my hobby. I love a good story. And I think that's part of the reason I, I love and appreciate the Bible so much. Not just because it helps me to know God and to grow in my relationship with Him, but the Bible is just an amazing story. It's the story of what this God, the creator, the, the one being that is like no other, what that being God has been doing in the world. And part of what makes that story so uh, exciting is that God chooses, God in a sense condescends to use ordinary people like us to accomplish his will and his work in the world. And in this series, this summer, and again this morning, we're going to be looking at one of those ordinary people that the Bible gives us as an example of, of faith and life. So to do that, I'm, it's from the Old Testament. In fact, if you've got a Bible at home or if you've got one with you uh, here, we're going to be looking at the first chapter of the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. So I want to give a little bit of uh, context. So I want to give you a, kind of an Old Testament history lesson very briefly, if I could do that. I think the Bible can be confusing, and the Old Testament especially. There are a couple dates, if you can remember these and hold on to them, I think it will help amazingly. The, the dates for Abraham and for David, and I think maybe we got them here on the screen. So really easy to remember. Abraham, 2000 B.C. David, 1000 B.C. Can you remember those? Abraham is when? See, you're through your mask. That's right. Abraham, 2000 B.C. And David... Right, all right. So we kind of begin this story of God's work in the world through Abraham. He's in Ur of the Chaldees. God tells him to, to leave his home and to go to a place that God's going to give him. Abraham and his descendants go to the land of Canaan, which is what is now the area of Israel. They settle there. And then after a few generations, because there's a famine in the land, they end up going to Egypt, where they are enslaved for several hundred years. And then under the leadership of Moses and then through Joshua, they come out of slavery. They go back to this land of Canaan and they settle there. But it's almost like they're not a nation. It's more like they are these sort of separate 12 tribes of related people. 
They don't have a strong leader like Moses anymore. And when a problem arises, particularly warfare with groups like the Philistines, God would raise up somebody, they called them judges, who would sort of lead them through that crisis. And then again, they would sort of fade into the background. And Israel, these Hebrews, would be kind of without leadership. And so this, this continues for several generations. Now we come to the time when there's going to be a transition from this sort of leaderless time of the judges to the time of the kings, of the, of the monarchs, Saul, David, and Solomon. And we know when David lived, he lived when? 1000 BC, that's right. So the transition person between this sort of leaderless time and the time of these leaders like Saul, David, and Solomon, the kings, is a guy named Samuel. He's sort of the last of the judges and the first of the, of the prophets. And Samuel's story, and he's an amazing, amazing guy. His story is found in those two books that are named after him, First and Second Samuel. And today we're going to be looking at Samuel's mother, and her name is Hannah. And Hannah's story is found in this first chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. So that's where we're going to begin today. So um, if you've got a Bible, turn to that. Otherwise, watch the screen, and we're going to look at how this uh, story begins. There was a certain man from uh, Ramathium, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Let's stop right there for a moment. Let's go back to that for just a moment. So, so what's happening here is that, that God is sort of setting the context. Samuel is such an important person that you sort of need to know where he came from, his, his credentials in a sense. So it begins with talking about his father, who's the thing to remember is there are the 12 tribes. One of them is the tribe of Ephraim. So his father is an Ephraimite. And it mentions those ancestors and some great names. I know some of you having children, you know, trying to decide on a good biblical name for your son or your daughter. I kind of like Tohu and Zuf especially. Uh, I just throw that out to you in case you're considering that. All right. So we've got this guy. Samuel's going to be Samuel's father. And it says he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. And that last phrase sort of sets the entire context for Hannah's life. Hannah was barren. Now today, if people are wanting to have children and are having trouble with it, there are lots of medical things that can kind of help in that process. A lot of couples are deciding not to have children or have them later in life. But in biblical times, especially during the Old Testament, really a wife was only good for one thing, was having children, especially having sons. Because the whole family name, the land that they, that they possessed, all of their possessions was passed on to the son. If you didn't have a son, if you didn't have children, you just felt worthless. And so I would guess that when it turns out that Hannah is unable to have children, her husband, Elkanah, takes a second wife named Penina, and she has many children. I might just say that the Bible never condones or commends polygamy. It just records the fact that in many situations, that's what the situation was. Now, now try to put yourself in Hannah's, Hannah's shoes. One thing she should do, 
One thing that gives her meaning in her life, having children and she has no children. And it seems as if Penina just makes that more difficult for her. Let's go on with verse, uh, verse 3 of this first chapter. So year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. Let, let's stop there for a minute. So you remember in, when they're coming into the promised land, they've got this tent church, the tabernacle. This is before they have a capital in Jerusalem because David establishes that, tap, that, uh, that capital city. And, of course, we know David lived the 1,000 B.C. Yeah, so that's the time period here. They don't have a capital city yet. They don't have the, the temple. So the, the tent, the tabernacle, has been set up at this town of, of Shiloh. And it's probably made a little more permanent, has some doorposts and things. And so we don't know a lot about sort of their religious life at this time, but some people at least continue to go to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to worship God, at least on an annual basis. And there's the priest there, Eli and his two sons who are serving as priests. So whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, or maybe it, it means like the best portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, that's the other wife, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year after year after year after year. I mean, it would be bad enough for Hannah to, to suffer with this stigma of not being able to bear children, but to make it worse to have the second wife sort of rubbing your face in it all the time. And, and the understanding in biblical times so often was if, if you were going through a crisis, if there was a tragedy, if there's some problem in your life, it's probably because you have done something wrong and God is judging you and God is punishing you. And I don't have any doubt that Penina would, would indicate that in direct or indirect ways uh, to Hannah. You know, Well, you must have done something really wrong for God to close up your womb to, to punish you in this way. We see lots of examples of that kind of mentality in the Bible, like Job, for instance. I mean, Job loses all of his kids, his house is destroyed, all of his cattle, all of his belongings are carried away, he loses his health, he's got boils and sores all over his body, and so his friends come to see him, and their conclusion is, obviously, our friend Job did something really bad for God to be punishing him this way. When bad things happen, it's really easy to think, to fall into the mentality of thinking, this bad thing must be happening because this person did something really bad. And in fact, I hear that question being raised a lot today. The question is, you know, so why do bad things happen, especially to good people? Is God punishing the world with this pandemic or is God punishing our nation have we offended God and God is going to punish us for that and that's why he sent this plague among us so I don't have a full answer to that question of why bad things happen to good people but I think the Bible does give us some truths that will maybe help us to to get a better grasp on that question especially as it affects all of our lives today 
And, and I would say the first thing we need to remember is that all of us are sinful people. The Bible says, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. When we say, why do bad things happen to good people? The reality is, according to God's standard of holiness, none of us are good people. Right? All of us have failed and fallen short. One of the examples that really helps me is remembering when I was a kid and my best friend Paul and I had set up a high jump pole sort of in my backyard and and we practiced high jumping over this this bar and I don't know it was three four feet something like that whatever a fifth grader would maybe be able to do and we felt pretty good about that now today here at Orchard you know we have our good friend Jacob Pauli who is a pole vaulter you know how high Jacob has, has pole vaulted over 19 feet 19 feet one inch so if I were six feet which I'm not, it'd be like three times my height plus another foot. That's how high Jacob goes. Is there a difference between what I can do and what Jacob could do? Of course, yeah, there's a huge difference. But if God sets the bar at 100 feet or a mile, it doesn't matter whether you're jumping four feet or 19 feet, nobody is coming close. The Bible says, yes, some people live better lives than other people, but according to God's standard of holiness, all of us have sinned. All of us are sinful people. And secondly, the Bible indicates that the God does sometimes use tragedy and suffering to punish evil and to bring an end to sin. We see that in the flood in the Old Testament or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes that happens. But we can't make that one-to-one -one connection because often bad things happen to people through no fault of their own, through no judgment of God. It's just that we live in a, in a world, a fallen world, where bad things happen. Jesus kind of faced that, that misconception head-on in, in Luke chapter 13. Uh, here's what it says in that place. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. I mean, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. What was the misunderstanding, the misconception that the disciples have? Wow, tragedy happens, tower falls on, kills those people. They must have been really bad sinners. We run into this again in the book of John, the recording of another incident in Jesus' life. It says, you know, as they went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, so Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So what are, what are they saying? You know, well, if he's blind, it must mean that God is punishing him because of some kind of sin, or maybe sin of his parents. Jesus answers this. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that all the works of God might be displayed in him. See, there was this misconception that there was always a one-to-one -one correlation between tragedy and bad things happen and a punishment for sin. Jesus says that, that's just not the case. In fact, if that were the case, we would all suffer. 
In Psalm 130, verse 3, it says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? If that were true, that every time somebody sinned, some bad, terrible thing was going to happen to them, none of you would be here today. None of you watching at home would be alive today either. It doesn't work that way. And we must be very careful not to try to make that equation between a tragedy or suffering or bad things happening and a person's sin. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's obvious. A drunken driver or a promiscuous lifestyle or uncontrolled anger. But so often it's just the case that we live in a fallen world where evil happens. And it happens to the good and it happens to the bad. So finally, I think the Bible would encourage us whenever we're going through hard times, like our world is going through today, whenever that happens, it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves, what is God trying to teach me? What is the good, maybe, that God is wanting to bring in, into my life through this experience? There's a pastor in the Minneapolis area named uh, John Piper, who, who wrote a sermon one time called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And I, I was so intrigued by the title, I read it, and uh, he just made a great point. You know, When you're going through tragedy, when you're going through hard times, it's always appropriate to say, what's the good that God can bring out of this? How can God use this in my life? What does God want to do through this hard time in me to teach me more patience or to be more loving or more, more trusting in Him? Hannah's going through a really hard time. She's barren. And how does she deal with it? Let's go back to her story. We're going to pick it up in verse 9 of this first chapter. So this is talking now about Hannah's family. And it says, you know, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up, and now Eli the priest was standing on his chair, sitting on his chair. He wouldn't be standing on his chair, now would he? He was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son... Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever uh, be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was praying in her heart, um, but her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli, Eli thought that she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Oh, not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. So how does, how does Hannah respond to this terrible situation in which she finds herself? She takes it to the Lord. She takes it to the Lord. You know, 
How do you respond when you're going through a tough situation? I know a lot of you who are here today, a lot of Orchard folks, you know, I know you are self-reliant, capable, talented people, and I would guess when, when something goes wrong, when you've got a problem, you start making a list of all the things that you can, can do to solve this problem. And I would ask of you, where does giving it to God fall on that list? You know, I've, I've heard the saying, when all else fails, pray. That's not biblical. It's not accurate. It's not helpful. We begin there. We begin by taking the problem to God. And that's what Hannah has done. She goes to God and she prays. Just a little bit of uh, Bible trivia. I have read that in Bible times, nobody had invented praying silently yet. So anytime anybody prayed, they <coughs> always prayed out loud. <clears throat> and so when, when Hannah's praying... She's praying in her heart, and her, her lips are moving, but she's not saying the words, so, so Eli the priest assumes she's drunk, and she says, that's not the case. I'm just, my soul is so heavy, and I've got this problem, I'm taking it to the Lord, and Eli turns to her, and he says, you know, well, God bless you for that. You're taking the right approach. He says, may God grant you the thing that you have asked of him. And so she, she goes home and she uh, conceives a son. And then he moves Samuel, which means God has heard me. God has heard my prayer. So what is, what is her response going to be now that Hannah has conceived a son? Well, let's go on with the story in verse uh, 24. I wanted, to, I wanted to highlight the end of verse 18. You know, it, it, she says, you know, may your servant find favor in her eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. I love that phrase because when she prays, she's got this terrible burden, this weight on her that she lives with every day. What does she do? She gives it to God, and then her face is radiant, and she eats, and she trusts that God is going to answer her prayer, and he does. So verse 24 then. So after he was weaned, she's given birth to Samuel. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, uh, I'm the woman who, saw it, who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. And I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So Samuel is born. She keeps him at home till he is weaned. And when he's old enough, she goes back to Shiloh, and she does an amazing thing. And I don't know... This just resonates in me so deeply. I don't know how it does for you. But what does she do? Samuel is so precious, so dear to her. She doesn't become the helicopter parent. She doesn't become possessive. She doesn't spoil him. She gives him back to God. Can you imagine that? You've waited all these years for a son. Now God gives you a son, and what do you do with him? You give him back to God who gave him to you. It reminds me of a, of a story in 2 Samuel about King David who lived when? 
Yeah, so just, you know, just a few years after this. And David and his men are in battle. David's the king at this point. They're in battle with the Philistines. And um, they've had a rough day. Now it's, the day has ended. And David and three of his mighty men of valor, they're called, you know, are sitting around the campfire at night. And David says, you know, man, I would give anything for a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem, the town where he had grown up. Uh, and then he says, well, I'm going to bed. You guys have a good night. Tomorrow we've got another big battle ahead of us. So David goes into his tent, goes to bed, and these three friends of David look at each other and they say, should we do it? Should we do it? So they decide they're going to get water from the well of Bethlehem for David. To do this, they have to run a long way. The, the Philistines are actually encamped around Bethlehem. They have to sneak through the enemy, enemy camp, get to this well. They lower the, the water skin down into the well. It fills up. They bring up this cold, clear water from the well of Bethlehem. They start back to David's camp. And David gets up in the morning, and he stretches, and he looks out, and he sees these three guys coming. And they're all tired and sweaty and dirty. And he realizes it's his three friends. And they come up and they fall on their knees before him. And they hold out this water skin to him. And David says, what is this? And they say, it's water from the well of Bethlehem. And David realizes what these guys have done. That they love him so much, they risk their lives to bring him water from the well of Bethlehem. And that water is so precious to him because it represents the love of these three friends. He says, I can't, I can't drink it. I've got to give it back to God. And he pours the water out on the ground. Maybe that makes no sense to you. But maybe it resonates deep in your heart that when you've got something precious, something so valuable, rather than just clutching it and holding on to it and possessing it, the best thing we can do is give it back to God. And that's exactly what Hannah did. So the story concludes uh, with these verses, beginning with verse 19. So... So each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer an annual sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. And then they'd go home. And the Lord did bless Hannah. She had three other sons and two daughters. So what do, we, what do we learn from this woman? I, th I think there are a couple lessons that are really important for us. And let's just quickly just look at those. The first is that rather than turning bitter, Hannah turned to God. You know, going to God with our problems is not a last resort. It's, it's the very thing that God would want us to do. You know, think of yourself as a little child and something goes wrong. The best thing you can do, you know, is go to your daddy. And share the problem and trust that he's going to take care of it. That's how God wants us to relate to him. And secondly, rather than becoming possessive, Hannah gave back to God. Those things that are most dear and precious to us, gifts from God, the best thing we can do is give back to him. My prayer for myself and for you here and those of you at home is that we might follow Hannah's um, beautiful example. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help in that. 
Lord, I thank you that you give us lots of examples in the Bible of just ordinary people who set a great example for us. And I thank you for Hannah. I thank you for the fact that she turned to you and entrusted you with her problem. And that when you gave her something so valuable, this son, that she gave him back to you, I would pray that we also, in the midst of hard times, you know, would be looking to you, asking what you are wanting to do and how you are wanting to teach us and how you want to use our current situations uh, to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.